Welcome back to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast for wellness-minded people and professionals who are passionate about transforming our broken, disease-focused system into a true healthcare system, which allows everybody to thrive. And I believe that everybody has the ability to thrive when given the right direction. I'm Dr. Rita Marie Scalzo, and I'm excited to share this particular topic with you. It's one that doesn't get popular when I speak about this with clients and with patients, but it needs to be said. And it has to do with the link between estrogen metabolism and caffeine. And we know that most people are addicted to their caffeine, right? Their daily cup of coffee. And they think it's just innocuous, but it's not. So listen up as we go through that. We also go into other things related to estrogen metabolism and things related to the toxins and the detox pathways and genetics. So listen up. We're going to be going into playing a recording of a workshop that I did on this very topic. Now, it's possible that you might hear me mention things that are more related to being live and also to pictures or slides. So here's the deal. Listen in. And if you want more details, if you want to really see the slides and see the detailed presentation, then I would recommend that you go to the show notes, you'll see it, or you can go to drreadingwayyoutube.com and find that particular episode on there. So enjoy, take notes, and put this stuff into action. If you're a health practitioner, you got into this because you wanted to help people, right? You really wanted to be there and help them to get their health back and be as healthy as possible and be as happy as possible. But it doesn't always work that way because a lot of the tools that you learned if you went through traditional medical training, like nursing school, medical school, physician's assistant school, et cetera, fell short of teaching you how to help people get and stay well. It taught you a lot about how to help people in crisis, how to help people when they're in the middle of a heart attack, how to help people when they need as an ambulance or some sort of care that's very aligned with keeping them alive. And so you got great tools for keeping people alive, but not great tools for keeping people healthy and happy. And one of the things that bothers me is every day I hear stories from people, from clients, from colleagues that talk about medical atrocities, things that are done like they told you what, they told you to do what, they told you to take what, and in reality, it's not going to really help them heal. So I want you to be the heroes in your patient's and client's life. I want you to be the one that comes up with those ideas for them, those lifestyle strategies, those diet strategies, nutritional strategies, exercise strategies, all of the above that help them to truly get well so that you're truly taking care of people. When we look at genetic variations, some people call them mutations. I don't like that term. We're not mutated. We're just varying. We look different. You have blue eyes. I have brown eyes. Doesn't mean I'm mutated. Maybe it means you're mutated. No, neither one of us is mutated. We're just different. It's differences. Some of them make us have a faster processing, like say in the caffeine metabolism gene, and some make us go slow. And some of them you don't know. Because until we look at how that person responds, sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's fast. It's not always the same. And this is what I'm talking about. When you get a report, you're going to see most of the reports are going to show you something like this. Green means mom and dad both gave you the expected gene there. 
Yellow means one of them gave you a gene that was variant. And then red means both of them did. And when we have these variants and we're looking at pathways in the body, it doesn't mean if you have red that you're not going to do that function at all. It just means it's going to be reduced. And generally speaking, it's reduced, you know, some we're in the 75 to 80% reduction with red. Some are in the 40%-ish with yellow and then with green, you know, it's whatever it is. But it's not just the genes that determine how well the pathways work. You can't underestimate the power of epigenetics because the saying goes, the genes load the gun, the lifestyle pulls the trigger. So you can have a mess of genes that predispose you to stuff. But if your lifestyle's pristine, your exposures are pristine, you meditate, you sleep, you eat well, you exercise, you do all the right things, good chance that you're not going to have fall prey to that. And there's some additional things based on those specific genes that you can do to protect yourself in that particular pathway. And when you are eating a certain way, drinking a certain way, being exposed to certain things, you can turn on or off specific genes. Reality, and this varies from who you read, but somewhere in the 85 to 95%, Bruce Lipton says 98% is controlled by the environment, only a little tiny percent. It varies from one person to the next. It varies from the particular genes. These are all the things that we have control over. These are all the things that you can counsel your patients on. Nobody learned this in medical school. Nobody taught you in medical school to tell people to meditate. All these things matter. You didn't learn this in medical school. If you went to naturopathic school, you probably learned this stuff. If you went to a nutrition school, you probably learned this stuff, but you didn't get the details of why. That's what we're going to do. We're going to marry the lifestyle factors with the why so you can explain it to people and they're more likely to do something about it. There is no one size fits all. There is no one size fits all health plan. And when we try to fit everybody into a mold, when we try to say, okay, here's the right diet. Is it macrobiotics? Is it keto? Is it vegan? Is it Mediterranean? You get the idea. There's no one size that works for all the same way as there's no one size sneaker size, even if the average sneaker size for us, like say they polled all of us and found out that the average shoe size is six and a half. We get a bunch of pairs of shoes. The majority of us are not going to fit into those shoes because it just doesn't work that way. Same way with jeans. If you're looking at a company that's doing a, hey, we'll test your jeans and we're going to give you this custom nutrition supplement program based on your jeans, it doesn't work. I had a conversation about that with uh, Dr. Ben Lynch. I said to him, what are your feelings about that? He says, if I believed that that could work, I could be very rich because I run the reports and I have a company that sells supplements. I could just say, okay, we just looked at your report. Here's the supplements and people would buy it because they trust him. He goes, no way. It doesn't work that way. So I would never, he would never do that. So all kinds of things, herbs and foods and lifestyle, it's all going to be a custom piece. There's some basic tenants, but then there's others. We're going to go into 
how is estrogen metabolized? We're going to look at how is it synthesized and how is it metabolized and the various genes that get involved in these pathways so you can understand. So we have estrogen, right? Estrogen comes from cholesterol. The bad guy that we're always taking statins to try to lower it's not a bad guy. It's a precursor to your estrogens and your, your sex hormones and also your cortisol and your adrenal hormones. So cholesterol via this specific pathway, which is coded by a gene, gets produced to pregnenolone. The pregnenolone can go to progesterone or DHEA, but all roads lead to getting down into estrogen. We're going to talk about some of these little SNPs in a moment. So this is how estrogen is eliminated. Cytochrome P450 enzymes, part of the liver, that detoxify things. These particular ones have a role in taking the estrogens and breaking them into metabolites so that they're ready for elimination. So we have phase one, they get produced into these metabolites, and then the phase two will get rid of them and get them set up for excretion. So these are the genes, CYP1A1, 1B1, 3A4, 1A2. So then phase two, the methylation pathway and the sulfation pathway are both involved with the breakdown of estrogen. And they use things like COMT, UGTs, glutathione S-transferase, P1 and M1. Those are all involved with getting rid of them, getting them into a place where they can be excreted in the intestines. But depending on how good your microbiome is, if your microbiome isn't working properly, then there's this enzyme called beta-glucuronidase. And it is created, it's inhibited by certain microbiomes, so microbes, and it's enhanced by certain microbes, right? And we can use a supplement called calcium deglucurate to inhibit that beta-glucuronidase because what happens is it takes all these great products that are all set being released, it turns them back into estrogen, which can create a situation of estrogen dominance. And estrogen dominance is not a good situation to be in. And then this is a little bit more detailed. So we have estrogen. We always talk about estrogen. The public talks about estrogen, but in fact, there's three major estrogens. There's a fourth one, which is really inactive, which is an estrogen sulfate. But estrone, estradiol, and estriol, those are the main ones. There's estrone is E1, estradiol is E2, and estriol is E3. Estrone and estradiol are very proliferative, so they can cause the growth of endometrial tissue, of breast tissue, non-cancerous breast cysts, so they cause growth, whereas estriol, E3, jo Dr. Jonathan Wright always calls it the forgotten estrogen, it's a protective one. So we want to move this in the direction of estriol being equal to or greater than estrone plus estradiol. That's called the estrogen quotient. The estradiol gets converted into estrone, can go two ways. And then using these pathways, CYP1A1, 1B1, gets converted into some of these metabolites. Okay. And this is the CYP3A4 converted into 2-hydroxyestrone, which is protective. And then COM-T is another catecholamine-O-methyltransferase can convert that into a methylated form 
you're not going to get sick from this. You're not going to get breast cancer from having too much 2OH. But if you have 4OH, it's the most proliferative. It creates these quinones, which are DNA damagers. It could be with the COMT, if there's enough activity there, converted into the methylated. So when we test, when we do some testing, I'll show you the testing that I like. We want to look at not just how much estriol is there, how much estrone is there, how much estriol is there, all three. We also want to look at the metabolites because it's important. And then we have 16. That's one that we want some of because it helps protect bones, but we don't want to have too much of it. So um, it can be DNA damaging. So I'll show you what those numbers should look like. And then when you create these quinones, we need to go through another pathway with glutathione to help break those down. So now what I want to do is pull some of this together and show you not just the genetic factors and the metabolites, but some of the diet lifestyle factors that can help support us going to the preferred pathways. So we have estrone, estradiol, CYP1A2 will convert estrone to estradiol, and then it will also convert estradiol down into methoxy, the methylated. CYP1A2 is the detoxifier of 85 to 90% of all caffeine that comes in your body. So guess what might happen if you have caffeine coming in all the time and that pathway needs to work on the caffeine because that's an external toxin coming in versus the estrogen, which is this there all the time. Some of that activity gets diverted to detoxifying the caffeine and less energy, if you want to call it energy, available to help with the conversion of the estrogens to the more helpful forms. If you have genetic variants in this particular SNP, CYP1A2, you can have a lowered threshold for getting rid of the caffeine. You can also have a lower threshold for getting the estrogens detoxified. One of the things you can do or advise your clients to do is avoid caffeine or minimize caffeine if they have the SNP. But the other thing that you can do, you want to avoid dangerous metabolites. Pesticides, alcohol, high fat diet interferes with the estrone being moved down to the 2-hydroxy. And that's done by the CYP1A1. If we want to enhance that pathway, we can look at things like DIM, methane, which is from cruciferous vegetables, indole-3-carbinol, same thing, exercise, flax, soy, omega-3 fats, and progesterone, okay? So these are things that can support it. When your client is low in magnesium and they have a CYP1B1, they're going to have more of this 4-hydroxyestrone produced. Like, see how you can... I advise people based on knowing some of these genetics and how you can convince them to do the stuff that you wanted them to do anyway. I just want to mention something because we're going to mention the effects of stress on all of this, on the detoxification, the conjugation, et cetera, of estrogen and the creation of estrogen. This is cortisol. Cortisol is produced when hungry tigers are chasing at your tail. Stress, right? How many people work with clients who are constantly under stress? How many people are under stress all the time, right? You either have kids or a sick mom or, you know, your own situation. 
So when we have the need for a lot of cortisol, it diverts the precursors, the building blocks down to cortisol, because guess what? Getting away from hungry tigers is more important to your survival than having sex and having babies, right? And your body knows that. And that's why so many people are under constant stress, have low sex drive, have infertility problems, and so many other things, endometriosis and other problems. So we have to keep those in mind. We want to make this nice and balanced because a lot of people ask me, well, I don't understand it. My client or I, we have low sex hormones, but our cholesterol is high. Why isn't that cholesterol being made into sex hormones? It could be vitamin B5, panathenic acid, right? Because that's needed for that conversion. So it's just one of the things. So what are the signs of excess estrogen? Weight gain, heavy periods, fibroids, PMS, fibrocystic breasts, loss of sex drive, fatigue, depression, anxiety, and hormone-sensitive cancers. It's not just the BRCA gene that puts a person at risk for cancer. It's all the rest of these. So signs of estrogen in men, gynecomastia, big boobs, right? Boobs that look like female boobs, sexual dysfunction, loss of muscle, fatigue, depression, anxiety, and hormone-sensitive cancers. When we think women, we think breast cancer, endometrial cancer, et cetera, ovarian cancer. When we think men, we go, oh, prostate cancer. But yes, the excess estrogen can predispose to prostate cancer, but men get breast cancer too, especially men who have developed that estrogenic appearance and the larger breasts. So I just want to say something because this is a really important point. If you or another practitioner that your client is going to decides this guy has low testosterone and wants his sex drive back, I'm going to prescribe testosterone. You could make the situation worse because there's a particular enzyme called aromatase that supports the conversion from testosterone to estrogen. Testosterone can get converted down into estrogen. So you can't just willy-nilly give a man testosterone. You can't just willy-nilly give a woman estrogen without looking at metabolites. But if you're not doing this, whether or not they have this high-risk profile genetically, you can get them into trouble because you don't know the metabolites that they're converting to. So if someone's having all kinds of symptoms of menopause and doctor says, oh, here, go on Premarin or go on bioidenticals, but they don't look at the metabolites, they can give somebody these hormones that causes their 4-hydroxy to go higher. And we've seen that. So what are the genetic factors? Now we're going to talk about the caffeine. So we have this CYP1A2 detoxifies most of the caffeine. If they have an AA, they are a potentially fast metabolizer. If they have an AC, they're a slow metabolizer. If they're CC, they're definitely a slow metabolizer. And I say definitely with tongue in cheek because it's not, you know, we can't always predict that, right? So it's responsible for more more than 95%. I was being you know, cautious with 85 to 90, more than 95%. 
And it's found in a cluster with those other two, the A, 1A1 and 1B1. 34% of the population are slow metabolizers. So it affects the estrogen clearance, which can cause fibroids, tender breasts, and cancer. There was a doctor, Vivi, Anita, something or other. And what she said was that most of the tender breasts in women have to do with coffee. So how does caffeine affect estrogen metabolism? Well, one is by affecting that CYP1A2, diverting it from detoxifying the estrogen. It can deplete B vitamins and magnesium, which are needed to produce progesterone. And when we don't make enough progesterone, we end up estrogen dominant, and that's problem. It also causes cortisol to increase. How do you think you get all that energy when you drink a cup of coffee? It causes cortisol to be effectively increased on a cellular level. And guess what? That leads to less estrogen, progesterone, and it also leads to increased blood sugar. It blocks adenosine. Adenosine is a chemical in the body that allows us to fall asleep. There's particular receptors in the brain, and it makes it so that you can't fall asleep so well. Most people will say, if I have a cup of coffee after five o'clock, I can't fall asleep. Some people who can probably are fast metabolizers, right? So you can guess at their genetics without even knowing. This was shocking to me. It was associated with miscarriage. And this was a study that was done in a prestigious journal. So if you have someone who's trying to get pregnant or who has tried to get pregnant and has had miscarriages, you want to make sure that they're off of caffeine. And it increases inflammation, which affects receptors, which affects everything. So those are the things that have to do with estrogen and caffeine. So here's some of the research I found. The CYP1A2 is most active in catalyzing the 2-hydroxy, which is the protective metabolite, right? So when you are interfering with the function of that 1A2, then what you're going to get is less of the two, less of the protective. Between 40 and 50% of those estrogens are hydroxylated at a C2, the second carbon position. Um, the higher the CYP1A2 activity was postulated to be associated with reduced risk of breast cancer. So if you're interfering with its function, you're going to have an increased risk of potentially of breast cancer. Caffeine has been used to evaluate the activity. So they have particular tests they go through and they can evaluate how well that enzyme is working. Positively related. So as the CYP activity went up, it was positively related with the insulin and uh, IGF-1. And both of those, when they're elevated, can increase the risk of breast cancer. So let's talk about it. So they said, okay, use caffeine. It potentially, you know, from a biochemical standpoint, it looks like it could increase the risk of breast cancer. So let's study it. They thought that CYP1A2 may be associated with, they first thought it would be better if we had higher activity of it. And then they thought it's better if you have lower activity. And now they don't know. <laughs> now they're just guessing, right? Because there's no clear correlation when you look at population studies. It induces the CYP1A2 activity. Is that good? It makes that makes us need more of that? Or is it bad because it's making us need more because we need more to detoxify this chemical that's coming in? So this is her, Anita Johnson, Chief of Surgery at the Cancer Treatment Centers of America in Atlanta, says the most common culprit in breast pain is coffee. 
coffee consumption was classified as possible carcinogen back in 1991, but now it's downgraded to not classified. We can't classify it. We don't know it's carcinogenicity. Personally, I think that if it's not known to be non-carcinogenic, I don't want to do it. Do you see what I mean? But here's the thing. I just wonder, it was downgraded in by the WHO. Maybe somebody paid off the WHO to change its classification, right? Who knows, right? Mm-hmm. Coffee is a big industry. Big industries have lots of money for lobbyists. So do we know? No, we don't. The evidence from the epidemiological studies is controversial. In my world, if somebody has those SNPs and they have either a red or yellow, homozygous or heterozygous, I want to proceed and err on the side of caution. If I tell them that it might be carcinogenic and I tell them to reduce or eliminate, then what's the risk, right? Other than they're going to be grouchy and hate me because they're missing their coffee and they need their energy. But that's another story, right? But if I err on the side of, well, maybe it's not carcinogenic, right? We don't know. Maybe it's not carcinogenic. And that person, I don't advise that. And then they end up with breast cancer. I'm not going to be very happy with myself and they might not be happy with me either. Okay. So I just want to make a case for other reasons uh, to advise against coffee consumption. Um, It increases blood sugar and creates sugar and carbohydrate cravings. I notice when people have coffee, they want to have a croissant with it or a donut with it or a cookie with it, right? Um, It can cause insomnia and poor sleep. And we know we need sleep for everything. Uh, It stimulates acid reflux. If somebody who has acid reflux, you've got to get them off of coffee because it actually stimulates the release of gastrin, which increases the motility, which increases the stomach acid. And this person can be a problem. It stimulates the release of cortisol, which raises blood sugar, et cetera, shuts off the digestive tract, can lead to estrogen dominance, which leads to all kinds of problems with thyroid nodules and fibrocystic breasts and PMS and PCOS and all that. Here's a shocking one. It's a cross-reactive to gluten. If you look at the Cyrex labs, I think it's array four that they have, they show coffee as one of the things that can, doesn't mean it does, cross-react with gluten and give somebody the same response as gluten. And it impacts the conversion of T4 to T3. So here we are, we're doing this caffeine to try to get more energy, but then we crash, right? Because the levels go down and then we need more. Part of it is T4 to T3 conversion. T3 is the active, right? And it can cause miscarriages. That's, you know, a biggie. And it's highly inflammatory. And there are studies contributing to osteoporosis. So here's some of the major genes that we can affect. I didn't put in the uh, CYP1B1 because it basically does estrogen metabolism. It doesn't do any other function. But these are things that we can help protect people with the 1A2 in addition to the, the caffeine, which we talked about already. It detoxifies acetaminophen and aflatoxin. And aflatoxin is found in peanuts and in some grains, right? It's a fungal toxin. CYP1A1 is responsible for the 2-hydroxyestrone, which is the protective one, and the detox of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, PCAs. So here's the thing. Those are found in exhaust fumes, 
right? So you caution people to avoid, you know, pumping gas with the car on. You teach people how to open their windows and let the inside air out. You caution people if they have an attached garage to always let the car air out before they shut the garage door. And it's found in charbroiled meat. Okay, so these are things you can caution people about to have better estrogen metabolism, especially if you do some of the tests and you see that they're out of balance. And the CYP3A4, pesticides and certain medications. So cautioning people to only take absolutely necessary medications, but also to eat as much organic food as possible. Same thing with lawn fertilizers and all that. I just made a list of some of the detox SNPs related to estrogen. We talked about the CYP1A1. We talked about the 1A2, caffeine and estrogen. We talked about the 1B1, which is strictly does the estrogen. We talked about the 3A4. 60% of all known drugs, and it's most abundant, right? And it metabolizes all the steroid hormones plus organophosphates, which is pesticides, Grapefruit juice inhibits and milk thistle inhibits in vitro, meaning outside the body in a test tube. And then the glutathione S transferase, which is that phase two to get rid of the metabolites. Just a review of methylation. Methylation gets rid of the steroid hormones, right? It gets rid of also dopamine, histamine, phenols, homocysteine, heavy metals, neurotransmitters. And we can support it with these nutrients, with these food-containing nutrients. Choline, get it from avocado, soy, sunflower, molybdenum, B vitamins, betaine from beets, SAMe, methionine, magnesium, methylfolate, methyl B12, and other methyl donors. Sulfation also gets rid of steroid hormones cortisol, androgens, and female hormones. Gets rid of xenoestrogens, which are those toxic estrogens you find in dental fillings and plastic bottles and all kinds of places in the environment. And those are hormone disruptors. Phenols, bile acids, some of these things are internal. We're not going to avoid them, right? But we avoid the exposure to the things outside of the body that we can. Acetaminophen, aspartame, uh, bacteria, endotoxins, so we get the, the dysbiosis handled and neurotransmitters. Inhibitors of sulfation are non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, too much molybdenum, and too much vitamin B6. And you can support it with these nutrients here. So daily choices that improve, affect, or diminish the effectiveness of estrogen metabolism, food, toxic exposures, mental status, sleep, and stress. So here are some of the foods that you can identify to help people. They're drinking coffee. Yeah, we can get rid of it, but we can also protect in other ways because a lot of people won't get rid of their coffee. So there's cruciferous vegetables, there's flax seeds, there's fermented soy, key, miso, tempeh. Uh, they have uh, natto, they have isoflavoins in them. Blueberries, raspberries, and strawberries have a lot of antioxidant to help protect omega-3 fats reduce inflammation and improve estrogen metabolism. And finally, fiber promotes the elimination of all the excess estrogen. What foods do you want to guide people to reduce or eliminate? Well, alcohol, because it increases the production of estrogen and can increase the risk of breast cancer. Processed foods disrupt the hormone balance, 
and negatively affect estrogen metabolism. High fat foods, certain kinds of fats, saturated fats and trans fats can increase estrogen and promote inflammation. Dairy products contain hormones that may increase the levels of estrogen and promote inflammation. Pesticides, they compete for the detox pathways. And now we have caffeine, which competes with the detox pathways. So all of these are things that you can do to help protect people against the negative effects of excess estrogen. How do you determine what labs may be needed to determine if this person is at risk? Here's the deal. The wrong testing can lead to a dangerous outcome. If we just test the blood, we test estrogen in the blood, and this person shows up low, and we give them estrogen supplementation, this person could be making a lot of 4-hydroxy and then get into trouble, right? Into too much, and their breasts and their, and their endometrial tissue and all is at risk. I had somebody that worked with us a while back, and she was doing pellets, so she had been doing it and I said, well, I think you should, when your pellets are done, let's test your estrogens, let's get the metabolites. And she went to the doctor and the doctor convinced her that she needed to renew the pellets. She did. When we looked at her Dutch test, she was off the charts in 4-hydroxy. And we're like, this is high risk. This is a high risk profile. She ended up with breast cancer. Did it get caused by the pellets? I don't know. And pellets, they put in and their ebb and flow. And in six months, they go back down to normal. So if somebody has too much estrogen and they're on pellets, you can't take them out. She tried. You couldn't, they can't take them out. They can't find them and pull them out. So we have to know how to test properly. We have to be able to do a complete functional assessment with the history taking, a physical evaluation, blood chemistry, and then whatever functional lab tests and in-home tests we have. And then, of course, genetic testing. The three main ways to test for estrogen are blood, saliva, and urine. Blood is a static at the time. Usually they don't do free. They do the bound, protein bound, so it doesn't really give you an idea of the activity. These are some of the endocrine-related functional lab tests. I love the Dutch test or the 24-hour. Meridian Valley has one that's similar that's 24-hour that has the metabolites. Saliva testing is great, but it doesn't give you the metabolites. Cortisol testing, we get to see what other factors. So the rest of these tests are what other factors are influencing. So we have cortisol, the digestion, immune system, fatty acids, amino acids, et cetera. So what do you do with these people? What do you do if they have some of these SNPs? What do you do if they have some of these labs? Well, I always send them pre-consultation forms. I do them online. You can do them on paper. You can conduct your initial consultation, determine risk factors, have them do a journal of their daily activities and diet. If they have old labs, request old ones. If they need new ones, you request new ones. And then we request any additional assessments, genetic testing, create a customized plan. But the big piece is we've got to coach them to implement the plan and overcome obstacles. Super important. So it's our job to look at what their symptoms are, identify what the underlying problem, the underlying imbalance is, but that's not enough. We need to go deeper into the roots and determine what are the causes of this. What are the causes? So when we're dealing with estrogen, when I, you know, in over 30 years of clinical experience, I find that inevitably 
if the sex hormones are out of balance, there's something down below, either in the lifestyle or in one of these other systems. And we're going to look at the gut next because the gut is super important for estrogen metabolism. And there's so many studies on this. So estrogen metabolism, microbiome balance, and gut-related SNPs. When we have out of balance microbiome and we have some of the gut-related microbiome SNPs like FUT2, whoa, we can get into trouble and we don't want to be in that trouble. The gut microbiota, it's also called the estrobolome. There's an enzyme called beta-glucuronidase. It conjugates or deconjugates. It, it puts the estrogens back together again and makes them active again. And then we can get into estrogen dominance, right? So we want to have good intact microflora. So this is an important piece to focus on in anybody with high risk of estrogen-related cancers and also with the symptoms. The intestinal microbiome and estrogen receptor positive female breast cancer. This was a study that they looked at this thing called the estrobolome, which is an aggregate of the enteric inside the gut bacterial genes capable of metabolizing an estrogen. And they found that postmenopausal estrogen receptor positive breast cancer was linked here. The composition impacted by factors that modulate its functional activity and variations in the composition and activities of the estrobolome, they're looking at that as a potential for how do we cure cancer? How do we prevent cancer? Get the gut in balance. So it's pretty cool research. Uh, we have the ovaries, adrenals, the adipose tissue, and other places that produce the estrogen. Get the estrogen into circulation. They go through the liver. They become conjugated estrogens. Those are the 2-hydroxy, 16-hydroxy, 4-hydroxy. Uh, and then they go into the intestine. They get excreted in the intestine or excreted through the kidneys. Okay. Intestinal reabsorption happens when we have more of that beta-glucuronidase, which is affected by the microbiome. So they play a crucial role by regulating estrogen levels. So it's super important to get the gut in balance when you're first working with people. The estrobiome, I talked about that, the estrobolome modulates that enterohepatic gut to liver circulation and microbes produce the beta-glucuronidase. So if we have too much of that, we're going to recycle and recycle and recycle and end up with estrogen dominance. And it produces active unbound estrogen, which can go back and affect the estrogen receptors. So diet and lifestyle factors that disrupt the estrobolome. No surprise here, right? Antibiotics and contraceptives because they affect the gut microbiota. The diet affects it. You know, too much sugar, too much processed foods, too many foods that have the xenoestrogens, but also the phytoestrogens can improve that. And the phytoestrogens are in some like, like clover and uh, fermented soy and things like that. Okay. So these are important things. There's so much to research on this. And what the bottom line is, is get the diet under control, get their gut under control, and then you can look at getting their estrogen and adapt. Don't start supplementing with bioidenticals or herbs that increase hormone production until you figure this out and get their gut under control. So 
This is just what do you do to personalize your review and note their genetic SNPs. You evaluate for symptoms of nutrient deficiency, do lab tests, educate them on food sources, recommend foods to avoid and herbs to increase. And we want to personalize their recommendation. We want to be able to motivate, inspire, and empower commitment to action. But we need to motivate and inspire them. And knowing the genetic tendencies, looking at labs helps us to motivate and inspire people. It's funny how it is. I can say, do this, do this, do this, do this. And it's right on. And they'll go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Until they see the labs and the genes and they go, oh yeah, I guess I better do that. You told me that two years ago. So I hope you enjoyed listening in and being a spy on the wall, listening into that live workshop recording. I know it was packed with good information. We heard from people far and wide that attended it, that they felt like it was the best presentation on estrogen that they'd ever heard. So hopefully you got a lot out of it, took a lot of notes, and are ready to empower people to take charge of their health and really look carefully at their caffeine consumption, especially if they have specific SNPs that we mentioned in there. And the other thing is to make sure that they look at for toxins overall. We all know that toxins are not good for us, but for certain people with specific genetic patterns or health history backgrounds, we really do need to be much, much more careful about exposures. This is just one of many presentations that I do to all of our healthcare practitioner communities. Go ahead and go to ianymethod.com to find out more about what we do and all the great resources we have available for practitioners. I am so passionate about changing this system. That's why I train other practitioners. And we need to change the system. The system is broken. The system is broken and people aren't getting the care that they need. So go ahead and check that out. If you want to watch the video, go to YouTube or go to the show notes and click on the link there. And until next time, shine on.